Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Welcome to Space 3D. In the conclusion of Season 2 of our podcast, co-moderator Eleanor Rangers interviews one of her other co-moderators, Tom Hill, who has been keen to discuss the science behind The Expanse, a science fiction television series based on The Expanse novels by James S.A. Corey. The series is set in the future where humanity has colonized the solar system, including Mars and the asteroid belt. It received a Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation and three Saturn Award nominations for Best Science Fiction Television Series. It aired for three seasons on Sci-Fi, which canceled the series in May 2018 because of restrictive distribution arrangements. Fans protested the cancellation, gathering over 100,000 signatures for an online petition. They lobbied Amazon Studios and Netflix to pick the series up. A crowdfunding campaign even paid for an airplane to fly a banner around Amazon Studios declaring, Save the Expanse. Amazon Prime Video picked up a fourth season, which will premiere on December 13, 2019. On July 27th, Amazon renewed the Expanse for a fifth season. In part one of this discussion, Eleanor and Tom review the premise of the show and explore some of the interesting science which has been woven seamlessly into provocative special effects. Welcome to another episode of Space 3D. We're actually going to be interviewing one of the co-hosts this evening, Tom Hill. Evening. Um, Hello. And uh, Tom has talked about having an episode around the sci-fi channel uh, program called The Expanse. And I'm going to let Tom go into a little bit more of a of description of that show in a moment. But Tom thought it might also be interesting for our audience to talk about The Expanse from the perspective of some of the science and the medical related things uh, that are in the show. So with that, we're going to kick it off. Uh, and I will say as a disclaimer, I have not watched The Expanse, so this will be as much of an education for me this evening um, as it is for our audience members, potentially. So with that, I am going to turn it over to Tom to give us a little bit of a uh, background on this show. So, Tom, okay. take it away. All right. So, um, so The Expanse, if you haven't heard of it, it is a TV show started on the Sci-Fi Channel but actually recently been picked up by Amazon. There were three seasons of it done on sci-fi, and they announced that it was going to be canceled, and within a matter of weeks, it was picked up by Amazon. And it was a big, a lot of fans claiming, you know, hey, we did it, all that sort of thing. Personal opinion, it's the fact that Jeff Bezos liked the show. (laughs) So the advantage of being a billionaire and running a multimedia conglomerate is you say, you know what? I want to keep that show going. So, yep. so once again, money talks. <laughs> yes, that's it. And, uh, and that opinion is unpopular in the expanse community. Just so those, those of you who are uh, thinking of expressing that don't, uh, don't expect a friendly opinion when you, uh, when you bring that up. Oh, okay. So the TV show is based on a series of novels 
and uh, they the novels. There are actually nine planned novels, of which eight are out at this point. And the first three seasons of the show covered the first three novels. It doesn't break exactly season per a season per book, but uh, it's looking like that's the way they're going to go for now. The um, the background of the show is that it's set approximately 200 years in the future. The uh, humans have colonized Mars, and they've also moved into the asteroid belt to supply the resources that they need for the rest of the, the work that they're doing. So they're mining asteroids. Uh, there are spacecraft flying between the the outer planets and all that. It, it still takes time to do that sort of thing on the order of weeks to months, depending on how things line up. And that's one of the treats of the, of the uh, show and the, and the books, especially for me, uh, they, they cover the time frame of how long things take, you know, it's like weeks later, you know, they arrived at such and such. So that, that's, uh, that's pretty nice. And that's kind of a unique shift for a lot of sci-fi. They try to gloss over that yeah. through, uh, through some some sort of magic exactly well let me let me uh let me just pause you there so <clears throat> that type of there are a couple of things that initially strike me number one at first blush uh it sounds like it's a not necessarily um an a, a post-apocalyptic or dark future this is suggesting a positive future that we finally do make some uh, expansion into the, into the, the, uh, at least the inner solar system, I guess. So that's kind of nice to hear. But also, it's also great to know that there's, at least in terms of the, the amount of time it takes to traverse for interplanetary travel, that also is pretty realistic. And as I'm sure you can appreciate, and I'm sure our audience can appreciate, it gets really annoying when there are technical inaccuracies when you're watching science fiction. Uh, yes. So, and we all tend to be nitpickers. So that's nice to know that uh, there's there's a re- some realism there that we don't have to nitpick for a change. And we're on. We're always, you know, we're very focused on our particular nits to pick. And if somebody picks a different nit, boy, do we get worked up. <laughs> that at least that's what I've found on on science fiction forums. Yeah. So let's see. They one of the underlying the underlying conflict at the beginning of the of the story. I'm I'm not going to go into spoilers here. I'll refer to if events in a general term that will that will happen throughout the novels and if you're reading the novels you'll recognize them when I mention them, but I won't mention who they're happening to or things along those lines. At the beginning of the story, essentially, you have Earth which is still powerful but not the up-and-coming crew. They have about 30 billion people on the planet. So they're overpopulated. Uh, A lot of the, a lot, there's a lot of ecological things they're dealing with, but they can do that with technology. It's not, it's not dystopian, but it's not utopian either. There are, you get segments of each, but you don't spend a lot of time on Earth in this in this uh, story either. So you know you definitely have your haves and your have-nots on Earth. The other one of the other groups, the main groups, are the Martians, and essentially the Martians they they are a colony of Earth. They um, they started expressing the idea that they wanted to be 
they're independent. They're independent uh, colony. And uh, the Earth started making noise that, that they didn't like that. And they were spooling up. They were spooling up to be a war. This is in the history of the uh, of the story. They were spooling up to be a war until Mars came up with this new technology that sort of revolutionized everything and said, hey, we can either fight and we'll kick your butts or we can share this technology and exploit the rest of the solar system together. And the Earth chose that. So that's kind of what's been going on. Okay. Well, let me let me ask you a question now. So you've got the Martian colony. How long has that colony been in existence, first of all? That's been going on for over 100 years. Okay. So it's clearly an established colony. There have been a couple, maybe one or two generations of humanoids that have been born in Martian gravity and, and so forth. Is there any commentary on any differences of the humanoids on Mars now versus Earth? Not Earth versus Mars, uh, but that actually gets into the, the next group of, uh, of people uh, called the Belters. Ah. And these are people who live on asteroids or on uh, stations between asteroids. And there are serious anatomical differences between Belters and humans and Martians. Now, it's hinted that there are some differences between Earth, Earthers and Martians, but it's not nearly it's it's clearly pointed out several times when you meet a belter, somebody who was born in the belt. They're taller, they're thinner, and typically their head is slightly larger is the way is the way it's described. And why is that? Is there any explanation about why they have different different physical characteristics? It's just from growing up in the lower gravity is basically the way it's brought up. And there's also uh, they hint at, but they don't go into the details on this, that there's some developmental thing that kids have to take drugs as they're when they're young to help develop their bones in in the lower gravity of asteroids. It's not mentioned as much on Mars. Okay. Uh, I, I can't categorically say that doesn't happen there, but it's not. Of course, Mars has higher gravity than than uh, asteroids. So what are we talking about in terms of low? So we're talking about 0.38 G on Mars, <clears throat> which, Correct. by the way, we don't know uh, it, it, in in reality if that's going to be sufficient gravitational field to uh, prevent any sort of uh, physiologic consequences like bone loss and, and, and other types of things. But I guess the assumption that's, is that's the case here. But what are we talking about in terms of gravitational field for these asteroids? I'm sure it depends on their size, but just tonight, I'm just curious about what they talk about on the show. It does. And okay, if you're on a, if you're on an asteroid, just a regular asteroid, they typically hint at on the idea of one tenth of a G. Oh, okay. So that's, yeah, that's pretty significantly reduced. That, that's pretty low. Uh, there are people described that who live, uh, were born in that type of environment. Uh, that they will never be able to be in any sort of significant gravitational field. Oh, they're just—you can just tell—they're that different. You know, their 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 bones just didn't grow enough to uh, to give them any sort of strength. They don't go into the details about specifically what they could handle or anything like that. But it's uh, but it's definitely something that they they talk about. But the key is there are a couple. Large asteroids, and this gets into some of the technology that's that's pretty interesting. So the larger asteroids, including Ceres and Eros, 
Okay, near Eros is a near-Earth asteroid. It's not one of the bigger asteroids, but it had a unique location being near Earth. It started off as an early port as we were moving out beyond Earth. Uh, Through technology that's not fully explained, they actually spun those asteroids up. So they're spinning faster than they did naturally. And then they built stations inside the asteroids. So that the people, when they're standing, their feet are actually facing out. Okay. And they're relying on the spin gravity generated by these spinning asteroids to provide gravity. And they're providing on the order of 0.3 G. Okay, so it's approaching Mars gravity. Right, approaching Mars gravity, uh, you know, more than the moon, definitely more than the smaller asteroids. But uh, but yeah, so that's that's a pretty unique thing that I hadn't seen in in many other science fiction well, stories. That's interesting. Now it has been proposed that you know if you could centrifuge individuals, you can you know the centrifugal force can mimic gravity. But I don't know if that's really true or not. I don't think that's been proven scientifically. But it's interesting that they're they're kind of using that as uh, you know as to kind of hint that it would make a difference for these uh the belters right well the acceleration is pretty much a physical law we we know that exists the the big question is would it mimic enough of it for humans the human body to respond is it enough of gravity to make the bones not decay and things along right. those lines but the, the fact you can generate that sort of gravity is is pretty much a fact but uh yeah our our response to it is the question and actually uh that leads to one of the coolest scenes in the show now i'm gonna i'm gonna state in advance i enjoy the show but i love the books uh the books i have on audible and i'll just listen to them over and over again when i reach the end i just i just start over again and listen to them again i'm not quite sure how many times i've been through them but anyway but the show is entertaining i enjoy seeing how they how they convert things from the 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 books to the show but they occasionally there'll be a scene in the show where they're just showing something off. So when I watched the first season of the show, I did I hadn't read the books yet, so I didn't, you know, understand what I was seeing completely. And in one in one moment, a guy poured himself a drink and he was in a different he was in a part of Ceres Station where the gravity was oh. lower and the Coriolis force is uh-huh. higher. And the drink poured in a curve. Oh, cool. And he knew the alignment and all that. And he just poured his drink and it curved into his glass. And not knowing what I was seeing, it was one of those, wait, what? (laughs) It was, you know, it was like, what did I just see? You know, and I rewound it. And yeah, okay, yeah, that was it. But And then once I read the, the books and understood that they'd spun series up to generate the artificial gravity, that then... Uh, that that explained it. Well, that's, that's now this cool. leads into, to, yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's the occasional thing that just kind of blows your mind. And this leads into some of the uh, class distinctions within within the Belter community. People who have more money buy or rent apartments further away from the center of spin, so that their gravity is higher and the Coriolis is lower. If you can't, the cheaper apartments are closer to the core where the gravity's less and the Coriolis is higher. Interesting. 
just kind of a subtle commentary that they throw now, in there. Also, here's a question. So the individuals that are wealthier or more well off that can get further away <clears throat> uh, to reduce the, the Coriolis effect and have higher gravi- gravitational pull, do they physiologically look different than the others? That They don't describe that that much. Usually it's just the kind of thing that uh, one of the main characters in the first book is a uh, police officer on series. And like when a call comes in, he'll just get he'll get word of the level and he'll go, oh, the Coriolis is going to be a pain there. You know, and that's that's pretty much it's like a side line. They don't go into differences uh, on how people look based on based on what level they're living on. So uh, talking about gravity, that that opens another uh, another area in this. They have a very unique way of handling gravity. We are not talking about um, artificial gravity like on Star Trek, you know, where the, it's just some sort of magic panel that, that does this. The gravity is handled through constant thrust. Okay. The, the spacecraft have a technology, and this is, you know, as most things in, in science fiction, you have to accept one or two things that once you accept those, everything else kind of fits together. And it's when they start conflicting with some of those one or two things that mm-hmm. you really get upset. But they have a uh, a drive system called the Epstein drive, invented by a man, a Martian named Solomon Epstein. And this was the technology that, that prevented the Mars-Earth war okay. from going through. Uh, and it, it's it's described in, you know, like one paragraph. He solved the problem of reaction mass where you have to carry so much fuel with you all the time and heat exchange where you have to dump all your heat overboard, which are the two big things in any sort of rocket system. So that was just, you know, waved away by Solomon Epstein and now everything works and they have this Epstein drive. So the Epstein drive allows a ship and they talk about fuel pellets that they run on. It is the type of fusion propulsion but it allows them to essentially pick the acceleration rate they want to be at and hold that for whatever period of time you need. It's described as being more efficient if you're at a lower G, like 0.3 or something along those lines, and less efficient if you're at a high G rate, which they get into at certain points and they have their own medical descriptions of how they handle that. We'll get to that in a moment. But... um but basically, so yeah, they have this Epstein drive, and the way they travel from one place to another is for half their journey, they accelerate at whatever G rate they decide. And it depends on, you know, how quick you need to get there right. and all that sort of thing. And then at the midpoint, they stop thrusting for a period of time. They flip the ship around, and they decelerate until they arrive at their at their destination. You an interesting aside here talking about this constant mm-hmm. acceleration. Mm-hmm. There actually is historical precedence for this. There was a proof of concept study that was done back in the late 1950s, actually, in uh, Warminster, Pennsylvania, on the Johnsville Centrifuge, where they, you know, later on trained the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo astronauts for their space flights. They would expose them to sustainable okay. force um, and be able to do high fidelity simulations uh, in preparation for what it would feel like to launch in a spacecraft, um, abort, et cetera. Well, 
there were two researchers in Johnsville, um, Carl Clark and another gentleman by the name of Hardy. And they did an experiment where basically Carl Clark put a Barca lounger into the gondola of the centrifuge. And he basically was spun in the centrifuge at a constant acceleration of 2G for about 24 hours. And they had, they did this oh basically goodness. to see A, whether the human body could tolerate that constant, you know, twice normal acceleration. But they also had, I guess, done some back of the envelope calculations that if you could accelerate a spacecraft to such a speed that it could exert a constant 2G acceleration on the human body, that you could make it from Earth to Mars in something like about 36 to 40 hours or something like that. So they decided to test the tolerability of that exposure to 2G. And essentially, Carl Clark, he basically sat in the lounger for 24 hours, uh, periodically took his blood pressure, listened to the radio, and uh, he was fine. So kind of proved the concept wow. that, you know, if you could if you could have a spacecraft that could get up to a certain speed, that could reduce, you know, obviously the amount of transit time uh, to to Mars. So so there is some historical context to this idea, which I think is very interesting. Cool. That's neat. Yeah. So um, so basically leading into ship design now with if you're just you have the ship, your ship at the bottom or your engine at the bottom, and then the ship is built like a building with floors above the ship. You've got engineering at the bottom, and then your machine shop, and then your crew quarters, and then your galley, and then operations, and then the cockpit. So so when you're accelerating, you can just walk around, go down the stairs between each level and all that sort of thing, and it's no big deal. You're just going along at whatever G level you choose. And normally... Normally for, you know, casual travel, they'll usually choose like 0.3 G or something like that acceleration and just follow that for the period of time. Now, a neat trick that they do in the in the show. Very rarely uh, will they do the full up zero gravity thing where they have women's hair all floating around and all that, because that gets kind of expensive. So, But you will see that occasionally when that when it's necessary. But at other times, you can tell. When they're at zero G, the women's hair is tied back. And whenever someone is walking, they add clicks of magnetic boots that that they're walking at that time. You know, as you can you hear the click, click, click. It's like, oh, they're at zero G, you know, and if they want to emphasize it, they'll have somebody throw a can of, you know, a Coke, you know, for the modern equivalent of a Coke to the, to each other or something like that. And they'll do something silly along those lines, which also uh, with the idea of this thrust starting and stopping, that also leads to some amazing scenes in the, in the, uh, in the show. I will, I will describe one scene here at one point, the crew, the crew was running somewhere and the gravity, the engines failed on the ship that they were on with no warning. They just shut down. So obviously the last step that they took was supposed to push them forward. Well, it pushed them up as well because suddenly there's no gravity. And the, uh, the, the, what they do to recover from that is actually quite amazing. So, so these two people are, they're running and suddenly they're drifting. They're running across a catwalk 
and suddenly they're drifting away from it and they're they have nothing to grab a hold of. So there's you know, they're they're stuck basically just continuing on the last vector they were on. They're close enough. The one character, they one thing that's kind of neat is um, everybody's trained in uh, EVA operations, you know, this kind of stuff you need to do. He immediately he has a, a tether line that he hooks on the person in front of him. Pulls them towards him. Puts his feet out and then pushes against that person, letting the line out. So the person he pushed against is now moving faster in the direction they were going, but he's moving back to get a hold of the gangway that they were on. He grabs the railing, gets himself set, turns on his boots, and then pulls the, the, the other person back in. Oh, my gosh. It's it's an amazing. They do it like in slow motion, so you can understand what's going on in the in the show. Oh, that's very it's cool. Pretty now, cool. Actually, that raises another question in my mind. <clears throat> Tell me a little bit about. It sounds like the special effects are pretty incredible for a television show. And, and granted, I mean, special effects have gotten much better um, with television shows in general. But curious about who who's producing this who's doing the special effects any any do you know any of that background for the for the show so i know that there's a production company that uh that is that was doing the, the was doing the production and they're continuing to do so now under amazon instead of sci-fi the reason i understand that sci-fi gave up on the series was that there was some sort of weird deal in that sci-fi only got money for the first showing of the show, the first run, which explains why when the second season came out, you didn't have like, you know, a week lead up to season two where you were you were seeing, you know, reviewing the previous season. They just it suddenly just the second season just showed up and Amazon had the long term rights for showing it. So what would usually happen is. As season two was approaching, season one would suddenly become available on Amazon. So you could watch it if you wanted to, but you'd never heard any mention of it on sci-fi. So it was kind of a, kind of a jumble on how it was done. Just probably some of the worst negotiated production costs and things like that, perhaps, you know, in quite a while. But, uh, but the company, yeah, has a lot of, it does a lot of computer graphics and things like that. And they incorporate a lot of recent information into what's going on at one point there's a scene in orbit around jupiter and the ship is flying low over enceladus and you see the geysers through the tiger stripes they fly right through that so that that was pretty neat that was fun to see wow is this filmed in the u.s or is it overseas i think it's canada I, i seem to remember it being filmed in canada and they they filmed season four uh, we just haven't heard a release date on that yet and whether they're going to release it all at once or, you know, one show at a time. But uh, anybody on Amazon Prime can get all right. caught up. Well, I guess that's, that is a homework assignment for me now. There you go. I'm, it's uh, it's good stuff. And if you do books on, uh, you know, on Audible and for driving and things like that, I recommend the uh, the book series as well. Like I said, I, I like the show. Hi. I love the books. Join us for the conclusion of our discussion of The Expanse in our next podcast. For Tom Hill and Emily Carney, this is Eleanor Rangers for Space 3D.